If you turn in your Bibles, please, to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. And if you don't, I would encourage you to have a Bible open today. We've got three chapters to cover. Not reading all of it, but we will be looking at different verses throughout those three chapters. So today is a day when you want to definitely have your Bible open if you don't normally have it open every Sunday. Uh, so you can use one of the Pew Bibles. We're on page 185 to get you there. Uh, Joshua chapter 10. We'll read a passage in just a moment. A few weeks ago, Britain celebrated the Platinum Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II, marking her 70th anniversary of her rule. And there's no question that the Queen is well-beloved by people not only of her country, but by people the world over. And no doubt she has used her position to do much good for the public, not only in her country, but again, for the international community as well. And yet, the world's longest reigning monarch is not really much more than a figurehead when it comes to political power. She is considered to be the commander-in-chief of the British military, but that responsibility normally is delegated to others by Parliament. She can declare war, but only when Parliament permits it. She can overrule laws passed by the Parliament, but that hasn't been done by a British monarch in over 300 years. She can dissolve Parliament, but such an action would undoubtedly result in extraordinary public outcry. The Queen's power, if we can even really call it that, pales in comparison to other British monarchs from two or three centuries ago or even beyond that. It pales far in comparison to those who ruled triumphantly with authority, not just in England, not just in Great Britain, but in territories that spanned the entire world. Somehow, though, because of the Queen's persona, because of her image, because of her status, when we think of a king or queen, we think of a monarch, we tend to think almost immediately about her. And if we do so, we're probably not thinking about a monarch in the way that most people around the world have thought about a king or a queen. And I wonder if that image, a very meek and gentle Queen Elizabeth, somehow alters our way of thinking about God. The Bible repeatedly refers to God as king. And it uses images of kingship to we tend to think of God. We tend to think of Him in those more personal terms, those, those tender terms, terms that stir up those positive and comforting emotions, terms that highlight the benefits that we receive from Him. Think of God as our friend or our shepherd or our savior or our comforter or even our father. Now, don't get me wrong, please. Those are true descriptions of God. They are biblical descriptions of God. God has revealed these things to us about Himself in His Word. They are true. They are accurate. They are right. They are good. And we must think of Him in that way. I'm not trying to diminish that at all. But when we only think of God in that way, we do diminish other attributes which are just as essential to God's nature, that are just as biblical in their revelation, that are just as true and right and good and worthy of praise in him to trust that he will give to us and fulfill for us his very precious promises like the opening song we sang this morning right how i'll hail the power of jesus's name we were talking about the diadem right and that image that you had of the diadem and the the, the crown the weighty crown that rests upon the head of the king king god our king of God, we must remember that He is sovereign and omnipotent and holy and righteous. Because ultimately, if God is not these things, He is also not gracious and compassionate and merciful and kind. Those things that we really like to highlight, right? Those things we really want to emphasize. Those things that are very dear and tender to us. If God is not sovereign and omnipotent and holy and righteous, then He 
He also cannot be our Savior and our friend and our comforter and our shepherd and our Father. Well, Joshua chapters 10 through 12 shines a spotlight on the supremacy and sovereignty of God. We see His authority, His kingship, His power, His reign, His supremacy laid out very clearly, emphasized very clearly in these three chapters. In fact, in Joshua chapters 10 through 12, the conquest of Canaan plays out just as God had promised to Israel going back all the way to Abraham. And throughout those years, especially in the wilderness wanderings, the book of Deuteronomy, in Joshua chapter 1, when he was beginning to put into process, into motion, his plans to fulfill his promises, this, everything, everything plays out just as God had promised. As Joshua and the Israelites make war with the Canaanites, God gives his people a decisive victory so that they can take possession of the land of Canaan, just as he had promised to them. We're going to start this morning by reading Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 to 28. That'll give us a sense here of the, what I call the flavor of the passage, that the key themes come out, and then we'll have opportunity to kind of look at various passages throughout the message. But let's look at Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Yaphia, the king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilga- in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son... Stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when, the remnant that, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua... Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, 
For the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded. And they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted it to destruction, every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. So what does God's victory here over the Canaanites tell us about God? I think there are three things. I'm going to go ahead and give you the outline at the very beginning. We can learn three things especially about about God because of his victory over the Canaanites. First, God is powerful. Second, God is just. And third, God is faithful. God is powerful. God is just. And God is faithful. So let's consider each of those in turn. So first, God is powerful. God is powerful. God's victory reveals his supreme power. Now, Joshua chapter 6 through 12 is the second major section of the book of Joshua. And it mainly recounts for us how Israel took the land of Canaan, how they conquered the land of Canaan. In Joshua chapters 6 through 9, the book focuses really with Israel's dealings with three key cities, Jericho, Ai, and Gibeon. Of course, we know Israel won major victories at Jericho and Ai, and they made a peace treaty with Gibeon and enslaved their people. If you want to know more about those, you missed the last few sermons, go back to the website or to the podcast, and you can hear more about those, uh, those events. In chapters 10 through 12, though, the text moves much more quickly and provides an account of Israel's conquest of Canaan on a much more general scale. It really reports just the key victories and summarizes the overall outcome of the fighting. And we can see some things that happen, just sort of the general outline of of this section of the book. We've already noticed, I think I've got a map up there. There it is. You can see where the blue... Well, that doesn't work. Okay, well, that doesn't work. Well, you can see the blue line there. That's where Israel went to begin with. They, as they crossed over the Jordan, they made a, they established a presence in the center of the country, Jericho, Ai, uh, Gibeon, Shechem, the Mount Ebal, and Mount Gerizim that we saw back in chapter 8. Those are all pretty much in the central part of the land of Canaan. And so this had, in one sense, a very practical effect of dividing the two parts of Canaan so that there could not be a, a, a sort of a strong alliance between the Canaanite city-states. We saw back in chapter 9 that the Canaanites really wanted to band together and form one major alliance to stand against the Israelites. But when the Israelites came into the land, they established themselves, established a presence there in the central part of the country so that it divided the land of Canaan into two parts. There's, no, there's going to be very, very, a, very difficult, a lot of difficulty being able to, uh, to share men and resources back and forth between the two areas of the campaign. It also allows them to focus on one area of the country at a time. And so what happened first is after they sort of took possession there of the, where the blue line is, the central part of the country, the rest of chapter 10 describes how they fought in the southern region of the country. Okay? That's the southern campaign. That's the rest of chapter 10. Once they win their victories there in the southern portion of the country, establish a, a, a sure presence there, then chapter 11 describes how they went north and fought in the northern part of the country and The chapter 11 recounts the victories that were accomplished there in the northern part of the land of Canaan. The last part, the last half of chapter 11 and Joshua chapter 12 summarizes Israel's conquest of Canaan and shows that they won a a thorough victory. They defeated their enemies and they took possession of the land that God had promised to them. Now, as we, if we were to read all of this section, and maybe if you haven't seen already, uh, when we send out the weekly email, we give you the passage I intend to preach on on Sunday, and it's in the bulletin this morning for what, I'll, what I'm intending to preach on next Sunday. You could read that during the week to kind of prepare you, and if, I hope you did that. And if not, maybe I would encourage you to go back today and to read the rest of this passage. But if you were to read these chapters, you would see that Israel is, is thoroughly victorious. They are fighting the Canaanites. And they are having success in every battle that they fight. But it's also clear that the text makes clear to us that Israel's victory is not due to her own strength, to her own advanced weaponry. Her victory is not due to the brilliance of their military leaders devising good strategies. Their victory is not due to good leadership. 
their victory comes from the hand of their sovereign and omnipotent God. For example, notice that back in verse 28, chapter 10, we see that the writer here credits Joshua and the Israelites for success in battle. He says, As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it, and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted it to destruction, every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Makeda just as he did, had done to the king of Jericho. If you go down to verse 36, same chapter, we see something similar. And then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it, and they captured it, and they struck it with the edge of the sword, and its king, and its towns, and every person in it. He left he left none remaining for as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction, every person in it. And even in chapter 11, something similar in verse 10. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hatsor and he struck its king with the sword for Hatsor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they, speaking of Joshua and the Israelites, they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed and he, Joshua, burned Hatsor with fire. So we see there that there's a very clear reference to Joshua and the Israelites doing the work. They are winning battles. They are being successful. They are, they are capturing towns. They are putting kings and the peoples to death. They are striking them with the sword. They are, they are doing that work. The work is credited to them. But then notice how the writer who uses the, the same language, the same imagery, credits God for victory over the Canaanites. So back in chapter 10, verse 29, then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he, referring back to the Lord, struck, with, struck it with uh, the edge of the sword and every person in it. He, referring to the Lord, left none remaining in it. And he, referring to the Lord, did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day, and he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it, as he, the Lord, had done to Libna. And then also in chapter 11, verse 6, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great, as far as great Sidon and Mizraphoth Mayim and eastward as far as the valley of Mitzvah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. So here the credit is given to God. What Israel is doing is they're doing the Lord's work. Israel is victorious because God is giving them the victory. He is fighting on their behalf, and he uses them as his agents to accomplish his victorious ends. In fact, we see that God really doesn't even need Israel, does he? By grace, he has invited them into the work that he is doing. By grace, he is enabling to them to be instruments of his work. But God even acts supernaturally to fight for his people and to give them victory. I'm sure that's probably the part that stood out to you that we read earlier. Look at verse 10, chapter 10, verse 10. And the Lord threw them into panic. Again, the Lord is doing this. The Lord threw them, the Canaanites, into panic before Israel, who chased them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. And there were more who died because of the hailstones and the sons of Israel killed with the sword. God supernaturally sent down hail, large hailstones, to kill off Israel's enemies. The Lord was giving his victory here that had nothing to do with Israel. The Lord was doing the work. In fact, the Lord was doing even more work and greater work by the hailstones than he was through Israel as they were using their own swords. More died from the hailstones than from the swords of Israel. And then go further in in verse 12. At that time, the Lord spoke to uh, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. God here causes time to stand still. He causes the sun and the moon to stop in their tracks. Now, when God created the world, he created everything in it and he gave everything 
There's you know, various laws of nature, right? He gave everything a purpose. He, gave, he set the sun in, into motion and the moon to do what they do. They operate on a regular natural basis. God created that natural order. But here God does something supernatural so that the sun and moon don't do what they normally do. Instead of simply rising and setting according to their course, tracks. He intervened in his creation to do a supernatural work. Why? So that the light would remain so that Israel could go and continue to fight against these five kings of the Amorites until they were dead, until, they were, until Israel had won a victory on that very day. Now, we tend to get caught up in that, right? That's probably the thing that sticks out to us. That's where we have our questions. But this is not the key point of the passage. The key point of the passage is not how did the sun and the moon stand still. The key point of the passage is God is fighting for his people. God is intervening miraculously to give his people victory, to accomplish his purposes so that his promises are fulfilled. Again, there are many scientific explanations that could be offered for this, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's still a miracle. Whatever happens is a miracle. God has done this work for his people. He is displaying his sovereign power so that his people might win their victory just as he promised them. We've also seen throughout the book of Joshua so far that phrase, I have given them into your hand. That's God's promise that Israel and Joshua would succeed. And he says this in the past tense before even a single sword is drawn, right? God speaks in the past tense as if it has already happened before it even has happened. Look at chapter 10, verse 8. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. I have given them. They haven't even fought the battle yet, but God says, I have given them into your hands. And then also in verse 19. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack your rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. Before the battle was even finished, Joshua reminds the Israelites that God has already given them victory. And when the time comes and Israel wins their victory, when they defeat a king, when they defeat his city, the same language is used to describe the fulfillment of that promise. Look at verse chapter 10, verse 30. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. Verse 32, and the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. So we see there that what he said he was going to do, he did. Just as he said, I have given it to you, it's as good as it's happened, even though it hasn't yet happened. When it happens, God has given it to them. Israel is only victorious because God gave them victory. And God gives his people victory because of his omnipotent power, a power that cannot be opposed or overcome. Look at chapter 10, verse 42. And Joshua captured all these kings and the Lord and, and, and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. In chapter 11, verse 20, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, referring to the Canaanites, that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So from beginning to end, whether God is hardening the hearts of the Canaanites to lead them to attack Israel or whether he is equipping Israel to fight or he is coordinating favorable circumstances for them or he is exercising his sovereignty over creation, God is fighting for his people. He brings the fullness of his supreme power to bear on their behalf so that the defeated, so that the Canaanites could be defeated. The extent of God's power is not limited to the 31 Canaanite kings that lived in the 13th century. God's power is supreme. God's power is total. God's power is unconquered. And therefore, God's power extends over all creation. And any power that rivals God's power, any power that exalts itself in God's place, any power that seeks to usurp God's power will be crushed because God is omnipotent. I couldn't help, I know this is maybe strange, but I couldn't help but seeing in this passage a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, we cannot properly understand the resurrection of Jesus without acknowledging God's sovereign 
kingship and omnipotent power. It was God's son whose corpse lay still in a Palestinian tomb on Sunday after his Friday crucifixion. But God, our sovereign king, raised his son from the dead, conquering every enemy that had assailed itself against Christ, whether those be the corrupt religious leaders, the wicked political officials, the sins of men who put Christ on the cross, the sins for which he died, all the devilish hosts who had assailed themselves together against Jesus, and even the power of death itself. God demonstrated his power in all its fullness, and he brought complete victory, sovereign victory, victory that can never be reversed, victory that can never be undone, victory that can never be superseded. Paul writes of Christ's victory over death and the implications of that victory for all of life and for all of creation in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 57, when he says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is an enemy. It is a power that we cannot overcome. But God proved himself. He showed himself victorious over death, crushing the power of death, raising his son from the dead. And now because Christ is raised, we ourselves have the hope of resurrection. We ourselves have the hope that this power that has been crushed will be true for us. When on that final day, God will raise us from the dead so that death will no longer be victorious over our lives. So as people who hope in Christ's resurrection, we ought to take exceeding comfort in God's power. God is powerful. This passage shows us not only that God is powerful, that He is also just. God is just. And God's victory reveals His righteous wrath. God's victory reveals His righteous wrath. So this victory that we see in Joshua chapters 10 through 12 is a thorough victory. There's no question about God's supremacy after reading these chapters. Because every place where the Israelites fight, the Canaanites come out... Sorry, every every place where the Israelites fight the Canaanites, the Israelites come out victorious. But it's not just that the Israelites defeated the Canaanites. This isn't just simply winning a battle and and having a victory. This is a thorough defeat. This is complete destruction. Look at chapter 10, verse 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all the other kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. That's complete destruction. In fact, the key word that crops up, not just in this verse, but in these chapters, and really in this section of the book of Joshua, chapter, chapter 6 through 12, is the Hebrew word harem. It's hard to translate in English. Usually we translate it with the phrase devoted to destruction. That these people were a cursed people. In fact, this word occurs at least ten times in these three chapters. And it refers in a technical sense to Israel's complete eradication of the Canaanites at God's own command. In fact, we see other phrases besides devoted to destruction. We see phrases like, he left none remaining, or he struck him, or he struck them with the edge of the sword. Verse 40, chapter 10, verse 40, he said he devoted to destruction all that breathed. And really emphasizing here the thorough destruction, the complete destruction of the Canaanites. Now, the question that we probably wrestle with, and I know we've mentioned this a time or two in previous messages, is why would God issue this decree? Why would he ordain a, such a violent end toward these people? Why not subject them to the rule of Israel's leader, Joshua, or later the future king? Why not enslave them? This command, again, from modern eyes, from a human perspective, seems awfully harsh, seems awfully cruel, seems even inhumane. Some have called it genocide or ethnic cleansing. And not only does it seem extreme, but it seems counter to what we know and celebrate about God, that he is loving and kind and merciful and gracious and compassionate. But what we need to see here is that this is really an illustration for something greater. The Canaanites, in truth, were not an innocent people. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 17 and 18, the Lord, Moses speaking to the Israelites from the Lord, giving them the word of the Lord, he tells the Israelites, you shall devote them, the Canaanites, to complete destruction as the Lord your God has commanded. Why? That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. What we need to realize here is that the Canaanites were wicked people. They practiced idolatry. Their forms of worship were heinous, often involving child sacrifice and ritual prostitution. They were immoral. How many times have you read maybe through the book of Leviticus and some of the laws that are in there and think, man, that's weird stuff. Why would God give laws? Who would even think of stuff like that? It's primarily to combat the Canaanites. It's what they were doing. It's what they were celebrating. It's how they were living. They were a sinful people. God, as Romans 1 tells us, has made himself known to everybody in creation through his creation. They know that there is at least a creator, that there is a God in heaven. They may not know much about him. They may not know how they can be saved. But they know that there is a creator. And yet they reject that revelation that is given to them in creation. And instead of acknowledging the creator, Paul says, they gave themselves over to every kind of wicked practice that they could imagine. What's striking to me is not what happens here in Joshua chapter 10 through 12. What's striking to me is why God didn't do it much earlier. Why did God allow this kind of sinfulness to proliferate? It's because he's patient. He is a patient God. He'd been patient with them. But in his providence, his patience had run out. And so as he sends his people to take this land, he uses his people to enact his wrath, to mete out his wrath in full justice for their sins. Why does God exercise his wrath in this way? Why, again, is he so violent toward the Canaanites? Well, the short answer is this is what sin deserves. If we tend to cringe at this, we need to reorient our minds to what the Bible says and not how we feel about it. This is what sin deserves. And if that's shocking to us, we don't have a good understanding of who God is. We don't have a really good understanding of what sin is. Sin is ultimately rejection of God and rebellion against his word. Some people might say, well, my life is my choice. I can do with my life whatever I want to do with it. And if there were no God and you were just talking to me, that would be fine because I have no authority over you. But we cannot say this to God because God is our creator and he is our sovereign king. And because of that, he has authority over our lives. He sets the rules for our lives. He sets the rules for our world because he is righteous. He establishes true righteousness for all people. And any deviation from his standard of righteousness is an affront to him and a challenge to his authority. And so rejection of God, rejection of his word, rebellion against his word will not play with God. Sin is a violation of God's righteousness and his authority, and it merits justice. What sin deserves is God's judgment. He tells us that the curse for sin is death. Death is the judgment that God pronounces for sin. That death takes its first form here in this world when we die. But as the New Testament makes very clear, that death is not limited to this life. It is eternal. And there in the second death, the wrath of God is meted out forever in just recompense for our sins. What we need to understand here is this is not just simply an historical occurrence. This isn't just something that happens for the Canaanites. This isn't, God's judgment is not reserved just for them, for people living in the 13th century. But the justice that we see God administer against the Canaanites foreshadows the justice that he will render against sinners at the final judgment. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, we see a picture of what that final judgment looks like. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. There's that word again. Many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That sounds very similar to what we see in Joshua. Language might be a little different. Images might be a little different. But the general tenor is the same. This is what God will do to sinners at the end. And if that happens to be you, if you're not a Christian, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, if you've never turned away from your sin and submitted yourself to Christ, then this is a precarious situation. Because God is victorious, He will exercise His justice. But there is good news. And the good news is that an intervention has been made. God offers to us what he did not offer to, his Canaan, to the Canaanites, and that is grace. See, in the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world to take our place. Jesus died upon the cross for our sins. Second Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake... God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus took on our sins. When he died upon the cross, he had no sin of his own to die for. He was, he was submitting himself to death. Jesus didn't deserve to die. He had no sin for it. He went under the curse. And yet he died for us. He took our sins upon himself. It's as if our sins were transferred to Jesus. And so what God did is he judged Jesus for our sins. It completely bypasses us. Not because it's what we deserve, not because we somehow earned it, but simply by the grace of God. This is what God's grace would do for us, that he would send Jesus to stand in our place. And so now, because Jesus was made sin for us, we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness is transferred to us. And so how does God see us? He sees us just as he sees his own son, Jesus. What grace there is in that. And again, Christ's resurrection from the dead demonstrates that, that sacrifice actually did the job. Right? How do we know that Jesus' sacrifice really, really did it? How do we know that we are truly forgiven of our sins? Why was it Jesus' sacrifice, not someone else's? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. That was the justification. That was the vindication. God's victory in Christ's resurrection reveals that His perfect justice has been accomplished, that God's wrath has been satisfied for us in the death of Jesus. And so because Christ died and was raised, we do not have to fear God's just wrath. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. When we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, Jesus brings us into perfect relationship with God and there is no longer any fear of His wrath. As God's people who hope in Christ's resurrection... We ought to take exceeding comfort then in God's justice. God is indeed just. God is powerful. God is just. Thirdly, God is faithful. God is faithful. And God's victory reveals his loving faithfulness to us. God's victory over the Canaanites brought a very real, very tangible benefit to Israel, right? They received the Canaanites' land. They fought the battle. They put them to death. And they inherit the land that God had promised to them, not just to them before they took it, but really generations before, going all the way back to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, God promised that he would give, he would give Abraham the land of Canaan to his descendants. In each generation following Abraham, God renewed his promise to the other patriarchs. After four centuries, when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, and the promises of God were seemed dead, God reiterated the promises to Moses and that revived hope among the people. And even after the faithless, faithlessness of the Exodus generation, God reconfirmed his promises to Joshua and the new generation of Israelites just before they crossed over the Jordan River. Now after at least, based on the chronology here, things we can piece together, after at least seven years of fighting, God's promises come to fulfillment. Look at chapter 10, verse 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country in the center, the Negev to the south, the lowlands to the west, and the slopes 
and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And then chapter 11 in verse 16. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowlands from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baalgad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a, a war a long time with those kings. There was not a, day, a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them in battle. And then over to verse 23 in chapter 11. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest for more. And what we're going to discover next week in looking at Joshua chapters 13 through 21, that Joshua divides that land that they've conquered among the Israelite tribes. And so they are now able to live in the inheritance that God had promised to them. So God's victory over the Canaanites reveals his faithfulness to his people. God did everything that he said he was going to do. And his faithfulness to his people is a sign of his love. Why did God do all of this? He did it for them. He did it because of his love for them, because of his commitment to them. God was actively working for their good to do this for them. Though it took hundreds of years to bring this about, God did it. He still did it. He was faithful to his promise. God's victory over the Canaanites foreshadowed his ultimate victory in Christ's resurrection from the dead. And in Christ's victory, God displays his faithfulness to its fullest degree. In Christ's death and resurrection, God showed his supreme faithfulness to redeem people from their sins. He made this promise again, not just before the New Testament. He made this promise going all the way back to Abraham. Remember, I'm not going to read the passage, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. But the promise that God made, he made three promises. I'm going, to make, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you many descendants. I'm going to give you a land, specifically the land of Canaan, and I'm going to bless you. All three of those things God does by the end of the book of Joshua. But what was the ultimate purpose of these promises? The ultimate purpose of God giving these promises was so that Abraham, through his descendants, would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And what is that blessing? It's not simply to live in the land of Canaan. It's not simply to be a part of the old covenant. The promise was that God would bring unrighteous people, sinful people, into a relationship with himself through the new covenant that he was going to inaugurate with his people. And the fulfillment of that promise does indeed come through one of Abraham's descendants, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Paul writes of this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, how does Jesus bless the nations. How does Jesus bless the peoples of the earth? He blesses them through his sacrifice, which atones for their sins and inaugurates for them a new covenant with God. The nations of the world, through the preaching of the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus, come to repentance and faith in Christ. It is through Christ's death that the penalty of sin is paid for. It is through Christ's death that the new covenant is established. It is through Christ's death that sinners find redemption and enter into the kingdom of God. It's through Christ's death, then, that the nations of the earth are blessed. That's the real blessing that God is offering the people of the earth. It's not a good life. It's not prosperity in this world. It's not good health. It's not favorable circumstances. The blessing he gives to all men and women throughout the nations of the earth who will believe in him is a right relationship with God. The forgiveness of their sins, eternal life, Hope forever. And of course, the resurrection proves the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice because God raised Jesus from the dead, meaning that the work of Christ 
is effective. It does the job. It is the means by which sinners enter into God's blessing. So God's victory over sin and death and Christ's resurrection reveals his faithfulness to his promise and to his people. But the resurrection doesn't just point to God's faithfulness in times past. It also points to the faithfulness that is still yet to come, to the future. In other words, God did what was necessary to save people by sending Jesus to the cross and raising him from the dead. But there are promises that were made in that event that is still yet to be fulfilled. And how can we be sure that when we die, we will still live? How can we be sure that we have indeed the hope of heaven? How can we be sure that we will enter into our inheritance, into our rest in Christ? We look to the resurrection of Jesus. Peter exhorts us, 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So we can take confidence that God will be faithful to his promise because he raised Jesus from the dead, not just to save our, save our lives spiritually, but to save our lives bodily and to bring us into his kingdom where there is reserved for us an inheritance that can never be taken away. In arguing for the hope of our future resurrection, Paul points to Christ's resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-24. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So Christ's resurrection is the promise that God will be faithful to raise us from the dead to our inheritance in Christ on the last day. So as people who hope in Christ's resurrection, we ought to take exceeding comfort in God's faithfulness through the death and resurrection of Jesus. God is faithful. I couldn't help but think about Psalm 2. Psalm 2, I think, beautifully summarizes Joshua 10 through 12. Let me read it quickly for us. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart from us and cast away their cords. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This verse reverses. We see the rebellion of the nations against God. They hate God's rule. They, they emphasize their, their desire to cast off the burdens and the yoke and the, the bonds and the cords that they feel or God is imposing upon them to enslave them and keeping them from doing what they desire to do. And in verses 4 through 6, we see God laughing. We see him laughing at the foolishness of their plans and their hopes and their desires because God is God and he reigns in supremacy. He will act upon them in his wrath. His wrath is fierce. No matter what they try to do, their, their plans are futile. He will prevail over them. In verses 7 through 9, he tells us how he'll do that. He authorizes his son, whom we know from the New Testament, is Jesus, the true and better Joshua. And it's this Jesus who will take vengeance against his enemies. 
he will conquer in God's name and he will execute God's justice. But at the same time, this God, this sovereign God, this supreme God, this victorious God is a gracious God. In verses 10 through 12, he calls these wicked nations, he calls all sinful people to abandon their rebellion and submit themselves to his son who shows mercy. Kiss the son, it says, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. It is this son, Christ, who will withhold his wrath from all who repent of their sin and trust in him. All who take refuge in him will find the blessing that God promised Abraham, to Abraham that he would give to the nations of the world. So how are we to respond to these passages? How are we to respond to the victory of God in Jesus Christ? Well, if you're not a Christian, the way to respond is to repent of your sins, to turn to Christ, abandon all of your evil ways, and trust in Jesus. Trust in what he has done for, for you. Take refuge in him. Take refuge in his sacrifice the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of your sins so that you might be saved. You might be spared of God's wrath. And not only that, but be brought into a new relationship with him, a relationship that is eternal. You will have his blessing forever. And if you are a Christian, what does this mean for us? It means that we, can, we respond in faithfulness and in obedience to God. That just as we first came to Christ in repentance and faith, that we continue to walk in that way. As Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. How do we respond? We die to ourselves. We repent of our sins. We die to our sinfulness. We submit ourselves to Christ and to his authority. We follow his lead. We obey his commands. And we do so willingly and joyfully because he is a good and gracious king. Let us pray. Lord, we are thankful for your victory that you have made exceedingly clear and thorough in Christ for us. Even as we look to these old historical passages in Joshua and struggle, Lord, maybe with how those things can be true or wrestle with how they can be relevant to our lives. We see its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in his victory, the true and better Joshua, the one who has put to death, the one who has conquered over every enemy that has been aligned against him. We thank you for that. We know, Lord, that we deserve that that wrath, that we were once enemies of God, dead in our trespasses and sins that we read at the very beginning of our service this morning. And yet we know, Lord, that you are a merciful God. You are rich in mercy. You are gracious and kind and compassionate. You've shown to us your love in Jesus. You sent him for our, for our, our life. You laid him out on the cross, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sins. And raised him from the dead so that we might have hope. The hope of forgiveness, the hope of relationship with you, the hope of eternal life. Help us, Lord, to walk in these things. Help us to walk in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Help us to walk in that power. Help us to walk faithfully and obediently. Help us to walk in submission. Help us to die to self and follow Christ's lead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.